Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 39, The Wealth of Asia, in which Nub Kaure Menemhat II receives the submission and plunder of the Levant, and becomes indirectly connected both with the Aegean cultures and a theory that the Great Sphinx of Giza bears his face rather than Khafre's. This episode is brought to you by Melissa, who donated to the podcast recently. Wherever you are, Melissa, I am very grateful for your donation, and to all the others whose donations I will be acknowledging in forthcoming episodes. May you continue to enjoy the podcast and the story of the Middle Kingdom. Episode 38, which was part one of Nubkaure's reign, finished in approximately 1907 BCE, just after the king appointed Kanumhotep II as governor of Menat Khufu in Middle Egypt. This episode begins slightly back in time, in the year 1927 BCE. This was the last year of the co-regency between Senusaret I and Nubkaure, a time in which governance of the kingdom was, more or less, in the hands of the younger king. According to the royal annals introduced in episode 38, in regnal year 3, Nub Kaure decided to launch at least two expeditions from Memphis. These ships left Egypt in the late inundation season, when the waters of the Nile were still floating high in the delta, making navigation in this region a bit easier. Their destination was the Levantine coast, which stretches from the eastern end of the Sinai Peninsula up to modern-day Syria and the point where Turkey meets Asia. Like many royal annals before the 18th dynasty, these records are pretty brief and don't give a lot of detail on the purpose of the expeditions. They tell us the general outline of events, but stick to the crucial points, which are the army's departure, its return, and what booty it brought back. Everything in between those points is left to the imagination. Nub Kaure did not lead these campaigns in person. He seems to have been content to let military commanders handle warfare on his behalf, and stayed at home during the actual fighting. Having raised recruits, he sent an anonymous overseer of the fighting troops of the army, or Imiar Menfat Mesha, to cut apart Asiatic Iwa, an unknown town in the region of Lebanon. The army boarded ships to sail down the Nile, out of the delta, and along the coast of Sinai and Lebanon. They came to the region of the Levant, modern-day Israel, Palestine, Syria, and Lebanon, and there began to overawe the locals. They assaulted towns, took captives, and destroyed any who opposed them. Victorious, the army returned in the next regnal year, having hacked up two towns, Iwa and Yasi. They brought a huge amount of booty, including over 1,500 captives, weapons such as axes and spears, and perhaps the most valuable commodity of all, 231 trunks of cedar wood. Cedar had been used and traded from the Levant during the Old Kingdom, 
and the mighty ships of the 4th and 5th dynasties were largely built of this wood. Nobkaure, it seems, was in the market for a great deal of shipbuilding and decoration for his temples, where cedar wood was often used for doorways and lintels. The journey was lucrative, but there is still some debate as to whether the expedition was military and plunder-based, or more of a trade mission. Egyptologists Hans Goetheke and David O'Connor, for example, have suggested that there was a substantial trade component to the expeditions, while Donald Redford and others suggest the army went both to attack small communities and to compel tribute from the locals more generally. Whether Nubkaure's army went there with the express purpose of warfare, trade, or compelling tribute, it seems that all three occurred as a result. The huge numbers of captives brought back by the army, and the explicit reference to the destruction of two towns, tell us that conflict was part of the journey. There's no doubt on that score. But then the soldiers brought back other items, like amethyst and copper, which are far more easily obtained through trade. Unless they were journeying through the Sinai, which isn't stated, then there was no opportunity for them to be near the Egyptian copper mines at Serabit al-Kadim. So, they must have acquired it from the locals in Lebanon. And then there is a second entry in the annal, which records the return of a trade mission that had visited Lebanon in two ships. This group did not bring back captives, but instead returned with a huge quantity of silver, nearly 1,700 weights of the stuff. 4,900 weights of bronze, 16,000 weights of copper, 4,900 weights of white lead, 16,600 weights of emery, and 40,000 weights of sand used for grinding stones. I'm not sure what was so special about the sand that it had to be sourced from Lebanon, but there you have it. A huge quantity of goods, no captives, and an explicit description of the group visiting Lebanon in ships. That does sound an awful lot like a trade mission. Noob Kaure's expeditions were a runaway success, bringing a vast quantity of valuable items into the kingdom, along with a huge workforce of captives. For their service, the king's soldiers and officials were rewarded lavishly. They were given captives, fields, gold, and clothing, the latter of which had been a valuable commodity during the Old Kingdom, when it could be used to buy houses and pay workers for construction projects, Nub Kaure could afford to be generous. His government had become fabulously wealthy through the endeavour. His power was known in the Levant, and locals had been cowed into submission by his soldiers. The fruits of this labour brought him great tribute, and the annals tell us that children of the princes of Asia came to the court with bowed heads, the traditional gesture of supplication. The event may be similar, or even identical, to one recorded in the elite tombs of Beni Hassan, an area ruled by the family of Kanum Hotep, whom we met in episodes 32 and 38. In a single surviving scene, a long train of colourfully dressed foreigners visit Egypt, bringing with them donkeys loaded with goods, and animals such as ibexes, to offer the Egyptians. They come with women and children, suggesting that this is either a migration or a deputation. Either one is possible. Any group visiting Nub Kaure's court to offer tribute 
was probably pretty similar to this one. They would have brought captives, including women and children, along with animals and material offerings. The annals don't provide much detail on who led this deputation, but it does mention some of the items, including 220 weights of silver, an unknown quantity of gold, 56 head of cattle, 1,002 Asiatics as captives, 6 weights of lead, and 55 weights of white lead, a material used in the Renaissance for oil painting, but now largely illegal due to its high toxicity. What the Egyptians were doing with white lead is a mystery to me, but if you are a chemist or happen to know some uses for it, I would love to know. Now what on earth was Nubkao Rey going to do with all this wealth? Well, Egyptian kings really only had a small number of uses for such wealth, and the most important one was the decoration and embellishment of temples. At a community known today as Al-Tod, Nubkao Rey made donations to the local temple of Montu, Montu, patron deity of the 11th dynasty, and namesake of its most famous ruler, Montuhotep II, had remained a prominent and august deity into this period. Sinusaret I had rebuilt the temple at Tod, commissioning an elaborate stone structure as part of his enormous series of construction projects up and down the Nile Valley. Now, to build on the work of his father and ensure his own patronage was acknowledged, Nub Kaure made donations of his own. What did he donate? Why, none other than a share of the goods brought back from the Levant. Four copper boxes and nails, gold in the form of two ingots and a cup, rings, bracelets and pendants, animal figurines, over 150 silver bowls, scarabs, figurines, beads, a bowl of lapis lazuli, plaques, and semi-precious stones such as carnelian, quartz, amethyst, and obsidian. In other words, a cross-section of the goods brought back from Asia. The spoils of war donated to a god associated with both desert wandering and military activity. And here is where it gets even more interesting, because analysis of the objects by scholars, archaeologists, and historians since the mid-1980s has created a generally solid consensus that many of the items do not actually come from Syria or the Levant, but from Anatolia and the Aegean Sea. The Aegean Sea lies between Turkey's western coast and modern-day Greece, and has been the home of island peoples and different cultures since nearly 3700 BCE. Helladic and Minoan cultures were already well established by the time Nub Kaurei dispatched his expeditions to the Levant, and it is becoming increasingly accepted that trade occurred between Asia and the Aegean from an early period. In fact, for some historians like Lawrence Steger writing in 2002, this period of history was one of the most important in the development of cultures in Syria, Palestine, and Lebanon. As port communities grew, their ability to connect with inland centers of royal power and foreign countries like Egypt allowed communities on the Levantine coast to develop significant independent power and wealth. Compared with Egypt, where the king's government carefully managed the dispatch of expeditions, the coast of the Levant was a hive of semi-international trade, 
Steger terms this theoretical model port power, and it is a fascinating discussion of ancient trade. You can find a link to a PDF of this article on the podcast website, courtesy of the Oriental Institute of Chicago, which provides the electronic copy free of charge. At communities in Israel and Lebanon, such as Ashkelon, which may derive from the ancient Semitic word shekel, or to weigh, and Byblos, cedar wood and wine were produced and shipped to Egypt during Dynasty Zero. Nearly 700 wine jars were recorded in a royal tomb at Abydos, named Tomb UJ. This tomb may have belonged to King Scorpion, but that is not settled conclusively yet. The important point is that Egyptians had been trading with the Levant for a very long time, and this activity may have had a significant impact on the growth and wealth of both regions. For Noob Kaure, the expeditions sent to the Levant were not just the continuation of a long tradition, but an incredibly lucrative exercise. They provided beautiful offerings for temples, captives for building work, and wealth in huge quantities. As a result of these expeditions, Noob Kaure's building program flourished. In fact, the royal annals mention that one of the main purposes the army was dispatched for was to find captives to work on the king's pyramid at Dashur. The pyramid itself was, appropriately, named Jephar Amenemhat, or Amenemhat is provided for. In other words, I wouldn't say the king was a particularly subtle man. The pyramid of Nub Kaure, called the White Pyramid after the traces of limestone at its base, is a sorry affair today. Most of the limestone was quarried away for other buildings long ago, and what remains today is a tumbled heap of brick and limestone pieces. The captives of Asia were probably put to work on this pyramid, helping to foster the misconception that all Egyptian pyramids were built with slave labour, fostered by mid-20th century films that showed Egyptians as whip-bearing brutes, and by the treatment of African slaves in the Caribbean, United States, and South America. But slavery means different things to different cultures, and we actually have very little evidence to suggest that Egyptians treated their slaves much better or worse than they did the peasantry. A peasant was lowly regardless of birth, because their wealth and lifestyle were rough and unrefined. In fact, there is a story from the Middle Kingdom that captures this sentiment almost perfectly, by providing an exception to the rule. The tale of the eloquent peasant is a story in which a commoner, having been wronged by a local potentate, goes to the king's court to beg justice. His eloquence is so surprising and so impressive to the king that he has granted his request and reimbursed for what was taken from him. I will cover this story in a later episode, and I refer to it here simply to reinforce that for the Egyptians, status was tied to different things than one's humanity or inhumanity. But Nub Kaure was definitely a little bit of a slave driver. At least 2,500 captives arrived in Egypt during the early years of his reign, and the men among them probably went straight to work at Dashur. The women, meanwhile, would have been sent to various communities as household servants for the elite and the soldiers. Others would work as weavers and bakers, producing food for the king's household and the workshops of the pyramid city at Dashur.
Among Noob Kaore's other artistic relics are a beautiful sphinx discovered at the city of Tanis. This statue in itself is not particularly significant, although it is beautiful. The reason I mention it here is because it helped to spark a small debate among Egyptologists over the early 20th century regarding the origin and nature of the Great Sphinx. Ludwig Borchardt, one of the foremost archaeologists of the early 20th century, proposed the radical notion that the head of the Sphinx had been recarved by none other than Noob Kaure. In an article published in 1897, he proposed that the representations of eye makeup on the Sphinx's face were not seen on Egyptian statues before the reign of Noob Kaure. Furthermore, he thought that the headdress of the Sphinx was carved in a style best attributed to the 12th dynasty. Borchardt thought that the Sphinx built during the 4th dynasty had become weathered and worn by the time Noob Kaure came to power. He suggested that Noob Kaure had the statue redecorated in his own likeness, enhancing his prestige by uniting himself with the ancient king Khafre. As you can imagine, Borchardt's theory was a little bit controversial, given that it rested on a couple of rather shaky assertions regarding decoration. Such assertions are pretty prone to being overthrown with more intensive scholarly study, and that is exactly what happened. By 1949, the study of Egyptian statuary had advanced considerably, and it became clear that Borchardt was wrong. Eye paint appears in many Old Kingdom statues, and the headdress of the Sphinx is replicated similarly. For Salim Hassan, writing in 1949, after 10 years of excavation at the Sphinx, the notion was absurd enough that he referred to it rather damningly as an astonishing flight of fancy. For an academic publication, that is pretty strong criticism. The strongest argument against Borchardt's theory is the fact that no large-scale construction project is recorded from the reign of Amenemhat at Giza. The king's work was focused primarily on Dashur. There is little evidence that he undertook any work at Giza. His name is not known for the region, but that of Khafre is. Anyway, let's get back to the bigger picture, and the other elaborate projects Noob Kaure commissioned. As I've said, his building program was not huge, and survives in just a few places compared to the 35 projects of his father. What we do know is that an old decayed temple at Hermopolis was rebuilt in limestone during Noob Kaure's reign. Today, all that remains is the base of a pylon, sitting alone amidst thickets and dust. This embellishment of the Hermopolis temple continued Senusaret I's habit of rebuilding older cult centres in newer, hardier building materials. The temple itself was most likely dedicated to the god Thoth, one of the more famous Egyptian deities. Associated with knowledge, writing, and wise counsel, Thoth was the embodiment of the ideal vizier and advisor to the king, whether it be the living king or Osiris. Martin Stedler, writing for the UCLA Encyclopedia of Egyptology, has a lovely description of the god's metaphysical role. Quote, Thoth can be perceived as the creator's intellectual capacity and faculty of speech, through which everything is conceptualized and called into being. This gives him an intimate relationship with language and texts. End quote. 
Thoth's prominence in the region of Hermopolis is reflected in the name of the town itself. For the ancient Egyptians, the town was called Kemun, but the Greeks, who associated Thoth with their own deity, Hermes, named the town after Hermes, so Hermopolis. I have not talked about Thoth that much in this podcast. The reason for this is that while he was old and important, he wasn't a prominent feature of the historical record during the Old Kingdom. He appears on standards and in various images, but he doesn't take an active role in the king's ritualistic obligations to the same degree as a god like Ra, Hathor, or Horus. Essentially, he was important, but not prominent just yet. This begins to change with the Middle Kingdom, and he slowly gains importance until he really flourishes during the New Kingdom. I will talk about him in more detail during Dynasty 18. For now, back to Nub Kaurei. Among other projects, Nub Kaurei contributed a colossal seated statue to the city of Memphis. The statue was quarried at Aswan, from the granite quarries that had served as a source of building materials for Sinusaret I. The statue is vast, 10 feet tall, over 3 meters, and weighing nearly 9 tons. Remarkably, we may have an idea of how it was installed, thanks to another painted scene from the non-royal tombs at Beni Hassan. The tomb of Thothhotep, possibly the nephew of Khnumhotep II, whom we met last episode, records the quarrying and transport of a colossal statue from the mines at Hatnub. Hatnub, about 65 kilometers or 45 miles south of Beni Hassan, was a source of travertine and alabaster. Thothhotep went south of the town where he ruled to bring back a huge block of travertine, nearly 6 meters or 18 feet, that would be carved into a statue in the town. He records the process as following. Quote, I caused the youth, the young men of the recruits, to come in order to make a road, together with shifts of necropolis miners and of quarrymen, the foremen and the wise. The people of strength said, We come to bring it. The old men among them leaned upon the child, the strong armed together with the tremblers. Their courage rose. Their arms grew strong. One of them put forth the strength of one thousand men. Behold, this statue, being a squared block on coming forth from the great mountain, was more valuable than anything. Vessels were equipped, filled with supplies. My community shouted praise. I arrived in the district of this city. The people were gathered together praising. Very good it was to see, beyond everything. The counts who were old, the judge and local governor who were appointed in olden days, their hearts had not thought of this which I had done, and established for eternity. After this, my tomb was complete in its everlasting work. End quote. By all accounts, this was an immense undertaking. A statue of many tons was shipped downriver, and pulled to the town ruled by Thothhotep. Thothhotep's tomb is unique in that it shows the process of transporting this statue. In the scene itself, the statue is shown nearly completed, rather than as a rough block. After all, a block of stone is not very picturesque, but a finished statue of the king is far more impressive in the afterlife. Long columns of labourers haul on ropes to drag the statue, which is placed on a wooden sled. 
At the front of the sled, a single labourer pours water onto the ground. Doing this would make the sand smooth and compact, a more stable and easy surface for the statue to travel upon. On top of the statue itself, an overseer shouts commands to the labourers, while the townsfolk line up to offer praise for the undertaking. The whole affair has the aura of a pageant, a grand ceremonial undertaking that Thoth Hotep could proudly record as one of his great achievements. Of course, he didn't help in any physical capacity, but I suppose it's the thought that counts. Thoth Hotep was justly proud of his worker's accomplishment, and it seems to have been an occasion for festivities in the region. He recorded that the youths of the region visited his community, along with the priests who hailed him as he whom Thoth loves, beloved of his king, he whom his city loves, whom all its gods praise. The temples are in festivity, their hearts are glad when they see thy favour with the king. For Thoth Hotep, everything was going swimmingly, the country was prosperous, and royal patronage saw projects flourish up and down the Nile Valley. With everything that was happening in Egypt and the Levant during the reign of Amenemhat II, you would think Nub Kaure would be more famous among Egyptian rulers. But after his death in 1292 BCE, he rather quickly faded into relative obscurity. The reigns of his two predecessors took on grander proportions in the memory of Egyptian rulers, and of modern historians. But today, he is slowly regaining some prominence, fitting his role as the third of Dynasty XII's accomplished and talented rulers. While he will never be remembered in such terms as a Montuhotep II, or a Senusaret I, Nub Kaure was a capable ruler, whose reign perpetuated the run of good luck that had blessed the Egyptian government for a century. When the king died in his 35th regnal year, he was succeeded by his son, Ka Kepere Sinusaret II, the fourth ruler of the dynasty. Ka Kepere had, like his father and grandfather before him, served as co-regent for a few years prior to taking on the responsibilities of sole rule. With the shift from one ruler to the next, Egypt would witness yet another change in the centre of power. As Sinusaret II moved his tomb south of Dashur to the great lake country known today as the Fayum. (laughs) 